electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Our thanks to Beth Schachter, co-showrunner, EP, executive producer of Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber and Billions, both air Sunday nights on Showtime. We appreciate your time so much. It's great to have you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Obviously, I mean, it's, it's right up CNBC's alley because we covered uh, Uber's uh, building from the start. Uh, we, we knew Travis pretty well. He came down here. I still remember uh, IPO day uh, like it was yesterday. What, what drew you guys to the story? I, I love this line that you, you gave when you uh, were speaking to the Washington Post about how it's an example of revolutionaries who eventually became the fascists. Yeah. I mean, it's really fascinating. So the, it starts with Mike Isaac's book. Uh, Mike Isaac, New York Times tech reporter, I'm sure you guys have crossed paths. Um, Mike wrote this extraordinary book about Travis and Uber and sort of the culture that he came from and the culture that was created and what happened. And in that, um, in writing it, he obviously, the, you know, you go through all the steps and you have a galley and he sort of knew Brian Koppelman um, from Twitter. So he DM'd Brian on Twitter, I think on like a Thursday, sent him the manuscript on a Friday. He, Brian shared it with David, his writing partner, who he's known for their entire life since they were 15. Uh, on that Friday, I believe they tried to, like, get, like, they basically were in by the end of the weekend, is how <laughs> sort of it happened. It's like, they were excited about it. And what got them on the, um, like, to really click into what the story was, and what got me when I read the pilot, is the safe rides fee because it was such an incredible distillation of everything that was incredibly fascinating and terrifying and what we didn't know about uber which was the safe rides fee which is this thing that happens in the first episode and it's not a spoiler because everybody has it has uber on their phone and they probably many of them may remember it um was this dollar fee to help pay for training for drivers but really what it was was a money grab it was just a way to make riders feel safer and for Uber to make more money. And it was fantastically brilliant if you have no moral compass. Um, and so for, I think for all of us, just that moment, which is what really opens the, the season, was so informative because it was really about who these people were, who these people are, and watching to see if there was gonna be any cost for their rise. And it is true, they were an incredible disruptor of a system that was and still may be somewhat broken. The taxi and livery system, you know, is was controlled by a certain small number of people. It was very hard to get into. It caused a lot of debt. It it made people indentured servants to their own medallion and to their car. And they disrupted that. They changed that. But along the way, they became everything that they were trying to disrupt and change. Yeah, it does, it kind of makes you wonder whether that level of success and disruption, I remember once uh, one of the big Wall Street banks said Uber is probably the most disruptive, most important app of the iPhone era. Uh, but it makes you wonder if it can, if things like that can happen without that sort of personal cost. I mean, that isn't, that's really the question we're asking. It's such a great way to phrase it, which is, 
can we disrupt without real social cost? I think it's a really great way to say it. Um, because it is true, like they think about all the things that we didn't have that they put together, the idea of the Google Maps and knowing where you are, the idea of a car at your service, then the idea of non-livery drivers, just classy drivers driving their own, you know, Toyota Camrys. So that all of those things had to come together for them to become successful and have this incredibly passionate and inspiring leader. And in no way are we saying Travis is not inspiring or passionate. He was both, he is both. There's, you can't lead people through this kind of sea change in culture and in technology if you're not, you know, pretty darn exciting to work for. <laughs> and everyone we talked to who worked for him, we've never spoken to him, but everyone we talked to who worked for him really said that about him. He was an incredibly right. inspiring person to work for. I wonder, as a showrunner, how you view the corporate drama right now, because succession's a thing. Um, we've had uh, McDonald's, and you know, the founder of the Michael Keaton film, obviously uh, Steve Jobs. Uh, Theranos has, has made its way into the narrative thread. What is it about it, uh, the corporation, that, that lends itself to such great drama? I wonder if, you know, it's something we, we talk about a little bit. We don't I try not to overthink it because what if I pierce the veil and decide there's nothing there? But honestly, what we really love about it is they feel like modern day kings. They feel like the monarchies in a Shakespearean play. Um, and they have the same kind of power and ego and huge um, moves. They make these incredible moves in their, in their companies. And so it just becomes this like, really fun thing to do for those of us that love sort of gangster movies and Shakespeare. That's really what this is. Like they're living the modern gangster uh, slash Shakespearean dramas right now. I mean, in real life, some of the stuff without naming names, I mean, a lot of this stuff that happens in these big corporations, especially with their private lives, their personal lives and their scandals. I mean, it just, it's like demois fodder, right? So isn't yeah. that the most fun stuff to write about? Yeah. I wonder, too, how you think actors, I mean, we've always said, how do actors think about playing historical figures? But in this case, you got actors who are playing people still in the prime of their working lives. A lot of them frequent guests of our air, uh, Uma Thurman as Ariana, of course, uh, Travis himself and, and Joe Gordon-Levitt, uh, Bill Gurley we have on quite a bit, Kyle Chandler is yeah. amazing. Do you think that... Um, What's the additional challenge to play someone who is still very active and present in modern life? It's funny. I think that I hope, and I think speaking with our actors, all of whom play either real people or uh, composites of real people, just for the sake of storytelling, sometimes we make composites of real people. Um, I think they love the challenge of trying to find themselves in someone that's real and that exists in the world right now. I think for artists, a lot of times, um, that kind of new challenge, especially for someone as incredibly experienced and talented as an Uma Thurman or Joseph Gordon-Levitt or Kyle Chandler or are incredible, the cast just goes on and on. Um, there's some real fun challenge there. I think it's a new mountain to climb. So I think for a lot of them, they just look at it like that, which is this is like a new challenge for them. Right, and the way you tell the story, um, the way things came together uh, between your team and, and Gordon-Levitt happened pretty quickly, right? I mean, this is yes. all happening. Actually, I think the timeline I gave you was actually for the Joseph Gordon-Levitt of it all and not just the uh, the book, though it did happen in three days. I think the Friday to Sunday was Joe. I think they finished right. the pilot on a Friday and by Sunday, Joe was signed on. 
Um, right. I think, he, you know, you'd have to talk to him about it, but what I loved is that he found the idea of playing the human, Travis, and also finding the animal that was so good at leading people and wanted to win at all costs. Um, that combination, I think, really appealed to him. Um, and I love that about Joe and the way that he came at the character, which is he came at it from an incredibly empathetic place. And that's, you know, I think you have to do that. We, in the writer's room, certainly came at it from an empathetic place, but just from a more global view, trying to be empathetic to every single person that was involved in this story and finding their own truth and their own path through the story. So for writers, it's a little bit of a different process, but it's the same idea of like really becoming um, open to the human as opposed to just the monster. You know, because the truth is, if we portrayed a Travis or any one of these people like monsters, it'd be really easy for the audience to be like, well, that's a dragon. Dragons aren't real. I don't have to reflect on my own part in this situation, this thing, this app that's in my pocket right now. But the truth is, they're all human. They walk among us. They're real. <laughs> and we all have Uber in our pocket. And so we're asking the audience to be inside the story of this show, which is what is your culpability? What is your responsibility when we have these apps once you know where they came from? And I don't have an answer. There's no prescription here. I just like the question. Yeah, that's, that's great. Um, I'd love to get you on just some broader elements of the modern streaming world, uh, some yeah. of the mechanics of, of show running in this era. For example, um, you know, there's, there's a miniseries versus a movie, there's all episodes drop versus weekly episodes. Yeah. Do you think the, is the industry settling on a formula in any way? I think, no, the industry's not gonna settle <laughs> on a formula. I think I would look at it a little bit like high-end grocery stores, which is um, weirdly, I don't think many of us who grew up when, in a world where there was just like a Ralph's and a Big Bear thought there would be eight high-end grocery stores for every medium-sized village or city, right? But there are, and I think that people like the idea of choice when they approach their entertainment, the way they like their idea of choice when they approach their $2 oranges. I don't know why. The psychology of that is interesting to me, but I do <laughs> believe that there's a real um, love for people to engage with stories in different formats on different platforms and with different um, story disbursement speeds. So I think it's gonna keep happening that, you know, Netflix will sometimes dump everything and then sometimes they'll dole them out one at a time. And sometimes Hulu will dump everything or sometimes they'll do three and then one. And then I think it'll just keep happening. And I think the audiences enjoy meeting the shows where they live. So, that, so the positive feedback loop is gonna keep happening. Right, right. You definitely need it's it's a uh, yeah. Water cooler is a currency, and however you manage to get there, um, yeah. is 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 how you're going to succeed. Uh, there's also this element of, okay, we're in this period. We've we've they, we've been talking about peak TV for you know five to ten years, and now we're beginning to get a little bit of inkling from some of the platforms that they're not interested in seeing content costs balloon much further. And I wonder, you, we've been in this seller's market for showrunners for a while. Is there a yeah. sense that that's topping out? Oh God, I need a minute to think about that and what that means for me. Um, 
<laughs> I don't think it, I don't know that it's topping out. I think, um, I do think costs are going to have to start regulating themselves. And I do think that the um, promotion of non-experienced showrunners to showrunner has had some cooling effect across the industry mm. because a lot, because there was such a dearth of material and so many outlets, so many people got promoted quickly that maybe weren't ready to do the job because it's a very complicated, strange job. And, and for a very long time, really worked on the apprentice system where you really did apprentice yourself all the way up to showrunner. Um, that hasn't been happening quite so much. So I wonder if that's where some of the tightening is gonna come. I don't know if the budgets are gonna come down. Um, I wonder if we're headed towards something a little bit closer to the indie film um, contraction after the 90s boom, where there just mm. simply weren't enough famous people to fill out all the material that was being made at a certain budget level and that budget level contracts. So I wonder if that's where we're gonna see that contraction is kind of this, the, what I would consider like the indie film size. Cause I don't know if you remember that, what that happened business wise, but basically after the nineties boom of the indie films and as DVD sales became a different beast, um, that film market and that film uh, business contracted starkly. And part of that was because there simply were not enough famous people that wanted to star in million dollar movies. So I wonder if that's maybe more where it's gonna go. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. The other element too, which I'm curious to know what you think is, um, we've been talking about theatrical windows compressing, uh, how that's related to the reopening of the economy and yeah. what we all hope is the end of COVID. Do you think streaming, how do they become more competitive if in fact theatrical run movies really make a stand once again? It's funny I, that you say that because I literally was just looking at the business report and looking at the returns for the new Batman movie. And I can't remember the number was what, what the millions were for what it came in at. But my brain couldn't actually remember if that was a good or bad number because it's been <laughs> so long since we've seen box office returns that were healthy that I don't remember what healthy box office looks like anymore. And I wonder <laughs> what that kind of reset is gonna do. Um, I know how disappointing it is not to have your project be on film in a movie theater and how incredible it is to have your film be in a movie theater. And I don't wish a contraction of how we get movies for the filmmakers that like to sit in the dark with you know 100 people and watch a movie. I think that's a, a shame. Um, but I do think that the if you look at what places like Netflix and Apple and even Lifetime are doing for movies in making these movies for streamers, there's a lot more space for a lot more people to tell a lot more stories. So though I am slightly a Pollyanna, I think it's actually <laughs> net positive um, for filmmakers. I think that there are more places to tell more diverse stories. And I think there are more interesting movies because of it. I don't know how the movie theaters are going to survive. Um, I think we've also probably, and this, I could get super dorky on this, I think we've snuck back into vertical integration and because the consent decree being um, uh, undone, I think yep, that we're yep. in a problematic moment for vertical integration, but. 
That's what it I, is. I, totally, <laughs> I, I know. I know exactly where you're going. I, I, yes. I personally, I think, you know, the streaming era cleared so much land for people to tell stories, as you say. And yeah. we've at the same time had a lot of young people grow up thinking I can actually do this. So maybe yes. that gets, maybe it gets filled uh, with people who otherwise would have thought, oh, I, I, mom will never let me go into that line of, line of work. I know, and it's what's so funny is, I don't know if you remember there was a movie uh, that came out, I'm not gonna remember, Tangerine. And it was shot, I think, entirely on an iPhone. And all the articles were like, everything is gonna be shot on an iPhone. Nobody's ever gonna use a camera again. That literally didn't happen. Um, so I think a lot of times what happens is we get these breakthrough moments that change the face of filmmaking and everyone's ready for it to be this quantum change. And I think it just accretes. I just, that's the nature of these kinds of businesses. It's accretive, it's not quantum. I, you know, yeah. I wish that everyone was no. making movies on cell phones sometimes because I think there'd be a lot more fun things. But then I look out and I see how much is out there that's so diverse that's so different from my experience in every single way. And I'm like, well, maybe this is better than just everyone makes movies on their cell phones. Yeah, I mean, it's funny, as you say that, and I'll let you go quickly. Um, as you say that, I think about like the last Apple phone introduction where they yeah. rolled out cinematic mode and you could do yeah. rack focusing and they had Catherine Bigelow come in and shoot that scene on the battlefield. I mean, don't, don't you think that at some level there's gonna be young people who sort of grab that and, and make a career out of it? Yes, absolutely. But I also think that technology, the professional technology is going to come, like most things, I'm sure it, you have tons of experience speaking to business people, you know, like these things meet in the middle. So I think the professional uh, equipment is going to start becoming more and more accessible as the, you know, more prosumer stuff becomes more and more powerful. Right. That makes sense. Hey, finally, um, so you got a season two, right? We got a season two. Yes. So talk to me about how, how, how you're breaking up the arc. Um, so season two will actually be about um, a totally different story. It'll be about um, Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg. I don't know if you've heard of them. Kind of new on the scene. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mike Isaac is writing another book about the relationship between Mark and Cheryl, and we're excited to start getting chapters and start putting that up on the board and breaking another season with him in the writer's room because it's just such an incredibly fun experience when we get to work with Mike um, and dive into all these great characters. I don't know what it will be other than that because uh, the book isn't done yet. So we don't know what's gonna yeah. grab us, but that will be season two. Who knows what season uh, Mike, three will be. Mike is amazing. Uh, I think of him, we, we, you know, we've had him on our tech show for years because uh, he brings such great insight. I am curious, one last question, how he works with you in dramatizing the narrative, trying to keep you, I'm guessing, honest somewhat in how things actually went down? Um, it's funny. I would say, like any great writer, first of all, that book, if you haven't read that book, I mean, I know you've read that book, but like, if people haven't read that book, it reads like a novel. Like, you're sort of like, this all could be just the uh, incredible brain of a great writer, but in fact, it's the incredible brain of a great journalist and great writer. Um, but what he really did was give us details that didn't make it into the book, either because uh, they couldn't be sourced to the level of a New York Times source so that we had to go resource them, or just because, you know, he didn't write a 10,000 page book. So, and, so, <laughs> and some of them weren't interesting to his 
conversation, but were really interesting to our conversation, personal stories and personal anecdotes. So I think that was a what was, he was incredible at. And, um, but he has a great imagination in terms of being open to the idea of, do you think this character could have done this? Would this be in keeping with this character? What would this character do in this situation? Um, and he was just incredible at that. I mean, he's just such an amazing uh, human and writer. So we were really happy to have him and we will kidnap him again when the writer's room starts for season two. <laughs> um, we're so proud of him uh, and, and of you guys. Congratulations again. And uh, we really you. love having you today, Beth. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much for taking the time. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.